Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Baby, baby, it looks like it's going to On this edition of The Big Interview, get ready to jump, jive, and wail with rockabilly legend Brian Setzer. Jump, jive, bend your way Hello, Brian. Damn. This is an honor. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you for asking me. It's an honor. Great to see you. Nice to see you. Have a seat. Brian Setzer is one of the world's greatest living guitarists. His daring and innovative style, along with his unmatched ability, brings new life to old, nearly forgotten styles of music. Before the Beatles transformed rock and roll, there was rockabilly. It's a genre rooted in country music and rhythm and blues that all but disappeared by the 1960s. Black and orange stray cats sitting on a fence. Ain't got enough dough to pay the rent. Brian Setzer resurrected rockabilly as lead vocalist and guitarist for The Stray Cats. I strut right by with my tail in the air. Well, your love. And later, he brought swing music back to life with his 18-piece Brian Setzer Orchestra. Brian Setzer grew up in Long Island, New York, listening to music from the 50s, and he was inspired by Eddie Cochran and Elvis. So, he started a band that played an updated take on music from that era. And they had a style to match. The Stray Cats exaggerated pompadours and distinct sound didn't make them an instant hit in the States, but the UK was a different story. As soon as Brian Setzer, Slim Jim Phantom, and Lee Rocker moved to London, they had a hit album that created a sensation on the continent. And when the Stray Cats returned to the States, they put rockabilly music back on the charts. Rock This Town became the Stray Cats' first top 10 single in the U.S. And the music video was so popular on MTV 
that it sparked a rockabilly revival. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame named it one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. In 1984, the Stray Cats called it quits. But Brian Setzer returned to the top of the charts soon after, this time playing swing music. Jump, Jive, and Wail repopularized swing dancing in America. The song also scored Setzer his first Grammy. Between the Brian Setzer Orchestra and Stray Cats, Setzer has sold over 13 million albums worldwide. He also has a signature line of Gretsch guitars, and in 2014, the Smithsonian added one of those guitars to the museum's collection. Go, go! Dig that Santa Claus. Well, now, the Brian Setzer Orchestra is hitting the road with its wildly popular Christmas show. And there's talk of Setzer teaming up with Slim Jim Phantom and Lee Rocker for a new album. That would be the Stray Cats' first in 25 years. I caught up with Brian Setzer near his home in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, again, Brian, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you. Let's jump, jive, and wail, or at least have a good conversation. We will. You know it. From where did that song come? How did you come up with that? Tell me the history of Jump, Jive, and Wail. Jump, Jive, and Well is a song by Louis Prima. And I had started this big band, and this whole kind of craze was happening. You know, uh, bands were starting smaller swing bands, and I had always wanted to have a big band, a full big band, 18-piece. And this song came around, and uh, I didn't find it. Tom Wally found it, who was the uh, head of Interscope Records. He goes, you ever think of covering this song? I said, yeah, I like it. And then before I knew it, the whole thing just uh, exploded, kind of all at the same time. It was uh, used in the Gap commercial. And people started dancing and swing dancing, and everybody all of a sudden loved it. Well, let's go back to the beginning. You grew up on Long Island, right? Yes, Long Island. Well, I, I find it a little, in fact, very interesting that a kid from Long Island discovers rhythm and blues, country music, hillbilly music, gets into rock and roll. How did that happen? Well, it doesn't make any sense, really. A guy from Massapequa, New York, loving rockabilly music. I really have to say, the first time I heard it was my dad was in, was in Korea, and he was uh, during the war, and I had to, he, he might have said something once, so I had to catch it, you know. <laughs> and he, we had three records around the house. We had Johnny Cash, Live at Folsom Prison, a Jerry Lee Lewis record, and a Carl Perkins record. My dad really liked Carl Perkins. So I asked him, I go, where, did you, how, where are these records from, Dad? He goes, well, I, when I was over overseas, I was with some southern guys stationed with, and they liked this music, and I like it too. So I guess he had brought that back, and those records were kicking around. And later on, when I had you know, discovered the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, I'll never forget it, the first time my dad walked in the room, he started singing along with the Beatles song. And I go, you know the Beatles? 
And he said, no, I don't, I don't know who these guys are, but this song is Honey Don't. It's by Carl Perkins. Because the Beatles had covered Carl Perkins, and the Stones had covered Chuck Berry. And I didn't know that. Those were my bands. And that's how I was led up to it. I think a lot of people watching and listening to this will say, well, I'm not sure what rockabilly is. They would know that they heard it. Right. But fair to say or unfair that it began as sort of a combination of African-American black rhythm and blues and white hillbilly music. That's exactly what it was. It was a conglomeration, really. It was, not only was it black and white music, but it was all sorts of black music and all sorts of white music. It was kind of all mixed up. And then it just caught a counter peg when, once Elvis kind of made that initial light in the match. Yeah. Your first instrument? My first instrument was not the guitar, it was the euphonium, which is a baritone horn that they gave me in school. Um, my brother and I used to march with it at school. And, uh, you know, they always give the little skinny kid the big, they didn't give me an alto saxophone, Dan. <laughs> they, they gave me a baritone horn, like a mini tuba. <laughs> and uh, then I finally bugged my parents into getting me a, make me a guitar. They didn't really, they didn't have any money. So I had to really pester them into, you know, into that guitar. That was a big investment. So you moved to the guitar at what age? I started playing guitar when I was eight years old. And did you take to it right away, or did it take some lessons to get you on to it? My parents uh, realized that I, was, that I was serious about it. And uh, they basically threw a dart in the phone book and came up with the best teacher I, I ever could have wanted, and they got me a guitar teacher. His name was Henry Skirty. Um, he was an Italian gentleman from Italy that played saxophone. He didn't play guitar. But in this way, he taught me how to read and write music without really me taking any, stealing anything from him, because he didn't play the guitar. Uh, I started getting pretty good on it, <laughs> and um, Mr. Skirty said, you know, I, I can't teach you anymore, but there's a guy a couple neighborhoods over. He's a jazz teacher. His name was Ray Gogarty. So there I was again, little kid with the guitar case, hopping on the bus, you know, getting off the bus, walking all the way down to see Mr. Gogarty, and I started taking some jazz guitar lessons. Because that's what we had mostly in New York and Long Island. If you were going to advance your studies, it was on the guitar, it was like, it was jazz. That guitar, when I first heard it, it just, um, it spoke to me. And I can't give you a real reason, but I, I had to do that. That's all I wanted was, was the guitar. I never felt like I fit in, you know. I was always doing something crazy, a crazy haircut. I'm, I was the first kid, if you can imagine, in the 70s to get an earring. My mom, like, it's nothing, right? Oh, in the 70s, that's, it, that's look ahead. Yeah, it was like, what? My mom made me take it out for the graduation picture. Please take that earring out, <laughs> you know. It was a big deal, so I was always kind of doing something crazy and, you know, something to shock the folks and all that, but... Uh, you know, I never had any trouble with anybody. Everybody, you know, I never had a tough time. I had a good, uh, good time growing up, good time at school. But yeah, I always felt like I didn't quite fit in with any crowd. I was a loner, you know. Brian Setzer could have been in the Coast Guard band? Really? Dan digs out the truth when Dan Rather's big interview with Brian Setzer continues. Thank goodness for us all that Brian Setzer found the guitar early. Dan learns more as the big interview starts back up. Hey, look at that. 
Well, I'm going to go back to the history. So you're now with a guitar, and you, you take to it like a duck to water, to use a cliche. And then you get to high school. You have your own band as you are entering high school, or while you were in high school, you started the first band? First band, I probably started in junior high, which would be seventh and eighth grade. And we, we would play rec dances, recreation. And uh, we were covering all the stuff we liked. So it would be everything from Proud Mary. So some, some people wanted to hear it too. We had to do that. Whatever was on the radio, you know, the Bee Gees, jive talking, whatever people wanted. And then I'd slip in some of my stuff that I wanted to do. That was stuff like Honey Don't, uh, Bebop Lula, Gene Vincent music. Bebop Lula. Yeah, yeah. She's my baby. Well, you came from what's colloquially called a working class family. Yes. What did they think of this? That they sent you aside and said, don't quit school. I mean, we like your music and we're glad you're interested in music, but we want you to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or a cowboy or something. <laughs> Somewhere between that. I mean, my dad had lots of suggestions. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember saying, you know, th this, this music fad is going to pass, so you need to learn a trade. And I didn't go for that. Then he wanted me to join the Coast Guard, which if looking back at that time wasn't a bad idea because, you know, he wanted me to serve my country and I could have played in the Coast Guard band. So to a dad's mind, that was a good idea. No, dad, I got to play this guitar, you know. I got I to gotta go to New York City and I got to be in a band, do crazy things. Seventeen years old, I was uh, playing in a band and I was making my own living. I was living in a basement, didn't have anything. I mean, you know, didn't have a toilet. But I, I was doing my thing. I was playing um, little corner bars. Uh, by then, I'd broken into the club scene. I was playing places like CBGB's, you know, Max's, Kansas City. So I was got, starting to get a little ground going. And all of a sudden, there's this tall, skinny guy looking at me with his hair combed back in a cowboy shirt. And it's Slim Jim. You need a drummer? You know, I do. I got my drums in the car. And it all, those guys kind of just came into my life at the right time. And you developed what band? It started a band called the Tomcats. And the reason I called it the Tomcats was because to get work, a, a club wouldn't have you within two weeks of another date. So we just kept the cat name, Tomcats, Stray Cats, Wildcats. This way we could play and all the fans would know, but we, would, we were fooling the club owners. <laughs> so we could get more work. <laughs> well, the Stray Cats became the best known. Stray Cats. Well, tell me about the Stray Cats. The Stray Cats, uh, actually the bass player thought up, Lee Rocker thought up the name Stray Cats. We all grew up on the same block. Little different backgrounds, but all the same, same kind of deal. Three Long Island guys. For some reason, we all loved this music. Me and Slim Jim were the guys going to thrift stores and getting clothes and trying not to get into fights because of the way we looked. I mean, you know, really looking like that back in the day. Even though Long Island is part of, you think, New York, Long Island is like living in, like living in Kansas back then. It's, it's you know, it's just, it, it's America. So we're looking crazy. We're listening to punk rock music. And Jim, I got to stand up on the drums because I saw it on the back of an old Buddy Holly record. I thought the drummer stood up. It was just for a picture, you know. But I got Jim to stand up, and then Lee 
he's the only one that can actually play the standard bass. No, the standard bass was only used in orchestras. And all of a sudden we had this unique thing going and it really had a chemistry going. So we started late 70s. You mentioned that uh, you got a lot of attention with the way you look. Yeah. That you were dressing retro at one view and to other people too far ahead. But tattoos, when did you get your first tattoo? I got my first tattoo when I was about 17. And uh, I just, uh, you know, again, it goes back to the, a lot to my dad. I like my dad. My dad's had a tattoo. I always liked it, you know. And I thought, well, maybe if I get a tattoo, I won't get in, I won't get in trouble. I won't get beat up. I won't get in fights. A lot, I, a lot of it goes back to in those days, not getting into fights. Isn't that funny? Because, you know, we'd be out in bars and stuff. People would be drinking. And we didn't want to get in fights because we couldn't fight. So after I got my first tattoo, which I drew up, and it was the Stray Cat head, became the Stray Cat logo, all of a sudden those things became like potato chips. You know, you want, you want another tattoo. But I don't see any showing. I don't have anything showing today, no, because I never wanted to get anything on my hands or in my neck. I, uh, because uh, if, you, you know, if you have something showing like that, and I always thought this, you know, and if you ever had to go, it got in trouble. And if someone saw that on your neck, like a cop or a judge or something, you'd be branded a criminal. I never wanted to get anything like that. I always wanted to keep it private, you know what I mean? But here you are now at age 59, no secret about that. Right. And by the way, I'm told that 59 is a special number for you. I'm not necessarily a numbers guy, but a lot of people are. What is it about 59? I know you're 59 years old. I just kind of, isn't that funny, I kind of clued on the 59? Uh, I'm 59 years old. My guitar was made in 1959. Um, that number seems to keep popping up for me for some reason. All the stuff that people collect seems to be from 1959. 59 Cadillacs, 59 everything. It kind of became my number. It sounds kind of silly, but I do. I consider it lucky. It keeps popping up for me for some reason. I don't know why that 59 keeps popping up. What year did you decide to take the early band to London, and why did you decide to do that? It seems to me an odd thing to do when you're trying to make your name, but it turned out to be very successful. We went to London because I said, I had a cover of a magazine where people didn't know what the word rockabilly was here. They didn't, they didn't quite know what we were. We were doing pretty well. I, I used to get this magazine called the New Musical Express. It was, you know, the hippest thing from London, what was going on. And there was a picture of a guy that looked like me. He was a rockabilly guy with an earring. Bam, that's where we got to go. We got to go there and they're going to like us. I didn't know. And we sold everything we owned and went to England. It almost didn't work, but it did. It did work. All of a sudden, people got it. And they've always loved American music in, in Europe. So we just got, all of a sudden, it hit big there. So big that, you know, we were just kids. They still wouldn't sign us in America. They, they, were, they still wouldn't have it. And all of a sudden, MTV started coming out. And MTV was playing us. And we were all of a sudden breaking, but just on the coasts, not in the middle. You know, it was just on the coasts where they had the MTV. So 
you know, and that's, we came back home. Well, MTV played a big part in jump-starting your coming home success. No, it absolutely did, because you could see what we were. These three guys playing this music that, even then, that was, we were the only band doing that, but we fit into that whole mentality of the, the 80s. Naturally, getting ready for the interview, I read about you. Yeah. And most people who write about you put your career in three separate periods. The first period was the Tomcats, the Stray Cats, when you're beginning to make your name. And you had some success doing that. Then, as is in the nature of things, things cool off a little bit. What's number two? So you're calling number one Tomcats and Stray Cats? Yes. That's, boy, you ask good questions. <laughs> There's Thank a reason. You. There's a reason for Dan Rather. Um, you know, number two is not necessarily the best time in my life. That's really, uh, that was kind of, I kind of drifted musically, you know. Uh, started drinking a lot. Um, got divorced, had a kid and got divorced. Kind of searching for stuff, you know. Made records that weren't very good. A couple good songs here and there. Getting comfortable with myself, you know what I mean? Uh, stopping the drinking. Uh, that was a, a long period. That was about a good 10, 15 years of that. And then you moved into phase three. Phase three, I'd have to say, would be when I started the big band, uh, right before Jump, Jab, and Whale. Because I had a goal again. I had something to do, you know. I, um, I became happy. Well, it also led you to take off on classical music. Mozart, Tchaikovsky, Bach, stop. Where did that come from? You described growing up on Long Island, working class family. You got intrigued by rockabilly music, but Tchaikovsky, Mozart, Bach, that's a whole different thing. I know. I'm, I'm like a crazy dude. I, I like all sorts of music. And, you know, I, I was never really in one box. I studied some classical guitar playing. Really, that came up because I was kind of looking for something new to do. What could I do in this big band genre that hasn't been done? And my manager said, you ever think of doing like a classical song? It was really his idea. It wasn't my idea. And I started listening to that. And again, things just seemed to fall in place for me where that's a whole other thing I don't want to go on about. But I found an old guy named Frank Comstock who's since passed away. And he, um, I called him out of the blue. He did all the old, like, you know, Doris Day movies, and he scored that. And he was doing nothing, because, you know, nobody wanted these guys. And we started rolling on this classical idea. And I go, do you think we can make classical music swing? He goes, you can make anything swing. And then we started sitting down and writing all the charts for Bach and Mozart songs, and it, it started rolling and just started happening. I'm impressed that you write this music, huh? Mm-hmm. You, you, you take... For example, you're going to concentrate on, let's say, some Mozart. So you listen, and then you say, I'm going, to, I'm going to do my take on this. But this is really hard work. I'm not suggesting that playing the guitar isn't. But to do this kind of scoring for a rockabilly musician or any musician shows, number one, a lot of hard work, and number two, an immense amount of talent. Thank you. I have a lot of help. I sit down with my trombone player. And we actually come up with, for instance, this is that's rock this town. 
ding 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 So I'll write that out. And then on the score, which is the big paper. Which is even more complicated. Right. So then we sit down and we go, I'd like to have the trumpets go. It's like, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Da-da-da, bam. So let's say I'll write that. And he goes, okay. Then he'll come and write all the harmonies. So it's four trumpets. Ba-da-da-da. Saxes. Da-da-da-da-bottom. So you think of that, and I'll write one thing down, and then he'll score a lot of the harmony. And that's how it, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Well, I can get the jigsaw puzzle. I'm not going to kid you. I don't read music. And for part of that, you may as well be speaking Swahili or High Norse to me. But I get, I get it. But the point is, there are very few people who have made their name the way you made your name. Rockabilly, people's music, if you will, who can do this kind of scoring with some of the, the classic composers of all time. I don't know what to say except thanks. I, I guess I'm the only rockabilly big band classical <laughs> hybrid guy with crazy hair. <laughs> When we come back, Brian Setzer takes his place among luminaries like Santa and the elves on Dan Rather's Big Interview. Why has Brian Setzer found so much success with a rockin' Christmas sound? Find out now as Dan Rather's Big Interview continues. The Brian Setzer Orchestra makes Christmas music rock. Setzer's take on holiday classics such as Jingle Bells led to four top-selling holiday albums and an annual tour that now is in its 15th year. One of the hallmarks of your career is what you do with Christmas music. Yeah. Tell me the story of how you got so interested. Was yours a particularly religious family? No, we were just regular. I mean, you know, just raised, you know, Catholic. Um, but the Christmas thing got involved with me, I think, um, because I started, I did a version of Jingle Bells because Jingle All the Way, the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, they asked me to do a version of Jingle Bells. It sounds easy. It's hard to do something that everybody knows and make it rock, you know, because it's Jingle Bells. Okay, so I cut Jingle Bells, and the radio station in, in L.A. starts playing it and playing it, and people are calling up. And then the, the phone started ringing. Well, the Schwarzenegger movie want another song for, for, for Lou Rawls. I wrote a song for Lou Rawls, who sung it beautifully. Then Darlene Love wanted one, you know, because I was doing this kind of thing and writing the charts. And that's how it started. And then it, it wouldn't let me alone. You know, people were calling, would you play our city? Would you come to, would you come to our town? So now the, the Christmas tour has become this big thing. Uh, I love it because I get to play with the big band. Well, here we are in uh, 2018. You'll be doing another Christmas tour. Yeah, number 15. Everybody likes Christmas music. But I mean, do you really like Christmas music? I do. The songs are written, Christmas songs are written beautifully. You know, they're not little throwaway trinkets. Christmas songs have stood the test of time. White Christmas, you know. 
the Christmas song that I was supposed to play with Mel Torme. He asked me to play the Christmas song with him, and he passed away. But, I mean, you play the Christmas song, which is a difficult song. Everybody gets mushy. You okay. brought some guitars here today. Yeah. Tell me the history, tell me the significance, and tell me about your guitars. Okay. Let's talk about guitars. Can I pick this one up? Sure. Okay. This is a guitar that I bought when I was 17 years old. And uh, it has all this stuff on it because I customized it. So when I was 17, I thought it would be cool to put up a pinup girl sitting on a record. Circa 1940s or 50s. Right. Girl. Maybe 50s, early 60s, because she has on a two-piece suit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a little more risque. So I thought that would be cool. And I thought it would be cool to put a set of Monopoly dice on there. These are not the Monopoly ones, but it didn't have them. And then you could see I could play it a lot, because I've gone through the finish. Well, let me take a look at that. That didn't occur to me. You have to play a guitar a lot to wear off the finish like that. Right. That's from your belt buckle. You really should be a little more considerate. <clears throat> so this was made in 1959. It's a Chet Atkins model. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've modified it a little bit. I started doing that as a kid to get it, because it was mostly made for, for, for country music, you know, for playing this. Chet Atkins. That's the way Chet would play it. Yeah. And when I got hold of it, it started rocking out with it. Uh, I had to do some modifications to get it to make it a rock and roll guitar. And this one? You well, don't have to put it down if you. Sure. That one's, um, that's a replica that Gretsch Guitars wanted to honor me with, and they copied this one. This the, is the original. This is the original. Well, now the original guitar got stolen. Tell me that story. That guitar was stolen oh, for about a year, year and a half. Uh, someone broke into the, the warehouse and stole a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, it was just gone. You know, I, was, I couldn't believe it because I lost it so many times, left it in cabs. And if someone to steal it, I got a phone call from the LAPD. We got your guitar. So uh, a judge had got, caught the guy, some guy, but we didn't know he had my guitar. And he goes, you either bring something in or you're going in. And he brought my guitar in. You know, out of all the stuff that he took, he brought the guitar in. So I got it back. I like a guitar with a history, and I like the part of the history here that it was stolen, but got back to me. Yeah, it got back to me. Yeah. And then they copied this one, even down to the, the scratches in it. It, is it, was it a one-time copy, or is this something they manu you know, made for public sale? Well, they only made 59 of them to, to fit in with my 59 theme. So there's only 59 out there, and they copied everything down to the scratches and, you know, the dice and... Um, even like the and wear and tear. And put your pin up up in the corner. Yeah, they got a, uh, a lady luck up there. I, I probably went through a couple different decals. And the stray cat down here. Right, yeah, the stray cat was down there. And the one, the, what shall I say, lime color one back yep. there? Well, I painted that one lime gold because my, the flames on my hot rod are that color. Not the motorcycle, but the hot rod. Right, 
my 32 Ford. Those colors are the color of the flames. So I wanted to do a guitar of that color. It's called Lime Gold. And uh, uh, so that's a, a Brian Setzer hot rod model after my hot rod. One of the things I want to do with this interview, first of all, I want it to be the best interview you've ever done. But It's getting there. <laughs> but let's talk about you as a person. We've talked about you as a musician. How do you describe yourself? It's always a difficult question when someone says, who are you? But who are you, Brian? In, in your own image of yourself, who are you? Hmm. That's hard, you know, to, to bear it out. I'm a good guy. Uh, I care about people. Um, and I'm just as insecure or uptight as the next guy, I suppose, you know. I think maybe due to my upbringing, I really associate with the butcher, the cash out, the cash register girl, you know, the guy out front, you know, who's doing the, the gardening. I like those people. You know, I can talk to them easier. I think I'm a pretty good dad. I think that's probably the most important. And I think, you know, I've taken that guitar and done something unique with it. Maybe it might not be something that, that you like, but I've done something that no one else has really done with it. Uh, that's hard for me to say, but I, I, think, I think that people have to give me that. I think people do give you that. And you know, they say in Texas, if it's true, it ain't bragging. I like that. But you say you've done something with a guitar that nobody else has done, and that is? I've created my own sound. Um, I've, uh, in other words, when, when you hear something on the radio, you know when it's me. You know when it's Eric Clapton. You know, you know when it's Jimmy Page. I think you know when it's me. That's Brian. No one else sounds like me. And, uh, I feel I've done that, and I feel like I've taken an, an old style of music and I've breathed new life into it, like people did with the blues, all the English guitar players, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, the greats. I think I've done that with Rockabilly. And I think pretty much the only one who's done it with Rockabilly. You know, there, there are some great players, but there are no one that comes to mind, really, because, you know, just how it worked out. Well, that must make you feel at least pretty good about yourself. I, it's hard for, for me to talk about myself like that. Sure. But when I go home at night, I, I can lay down and say, man, I, I, really, I really do a good job on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the worst thing that's happened to you in your life? Boy, some things are hard to talk about. But since we want this to be the best thing, I think the worst thing that ever happened was uh, me becoming an alcoholic and hurting people that you wouldn't mean to do if you were sober. It's, a, it's an old story for people who've, who were alcoholics, is that they've abused relationships, you know. And uh, I've tried to repair those. Some you can, some you can't. I think the worst thing was, you know, getting reliant on something like a, like a bottle of whiskey, you know. Never said that before, but it's, it's a terrible awful place to be. Some people never make it back from that. How did you manage to shake it? Well, my grandfather never made it back from that. And I always said, I'll never wind up like him. 
<laughs> and I was pretty close. And uh, I uh, tried a couple times to pick myself up and uh, it didn't work. And I went to a treatment facility called Crossroads that Eric Clapton um, uh, has started. And that did it. It shook me up pretty good. Um, and I continue now to, to go to meetings. You know, uh, Not really supposed to talk about that too much, but um, that's the best thing I ever did. You know, Because now, if you're making a, de a decision, right or wrong, you're making it with a, with, with a clear head. You're not making some crazy decision. Well, let me say to you, I appreciate your candor in that. Not everybody would talk about it that candidly. Now, you said that was at least among the worst things that happened in your life, if not the worst thing. What did you learn from it that you've been able to apply to life as it goes on? Well, the number one thing you learn, I think, from getting sober is that um, you, you can't rely on, on, on things as a crutch. You, you can't rely on things to get you through life like that. Whether you're hooked on like pills or booze, whatever people have, you got to face it. Uh, it's not always fun, you know. I hate going to parties. I hate it, you know. I'm, I'm not good. I don't, I don't want to be there, you know. And, and the best thing for an icebreaker is, is to have, a, you know, is to have a drink. You know, that's why people do it. But, you know, the, the best thing about life now is, you know, you feel things good or bad, you know, and that, that's the way it has to be. Well, how about playing something for me? Your choice, play anything. How about the song that started it all? The Rockabilly song that started it all. Mystery Train? Mystery Train. Elvis Presley? You bet. Train couldn't have done it any better. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you've been so generous with your time and with yourself. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Oh, you've asked me things I've never answered. <laughs> I, 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 we've got it covered, I think. Well, let me come it, to the end or near the end this way. Tell me something about yourself that I don't know or that people don't know. What don't you know about me? Ah, uh, just little stuff maybe that I'm 
super private, shy person, maybe, you know, that uh, everybody thinks people start you know, get into rock and roll for, for the girls and the parties and, you know, yeah, the girls, <laughs> but um, I really started to play because, because of the, the music, you know, and I, I still love it. I, I could still hold this guitar and the way it vibrates and the way I feel with it, it's still, it's the best thing you could ever, ever feel. It still makes me, it still makes me happy, you know, it's still the best thing ever. Well, it shows that it makes you happy. But I'm glad the subject came up because you don't think of someone, and I mean this very respectfully, someone who's made his living a great deal of his life with the ducktail look and maybe hips on stage as being a shy person. It doesn't make, yeah, it doesn't seem like you would. I think there's a lot of people like that because when, when I hit the stage, then it's, it just becomes you what you are. But when I get off that stage, I don't want the party and I, I, I just want to go home and play with the dogs and, you know, have a little fun, relax. Do you ever play for the dog? Oh, yeah, I'm always sitting around playing around the house, but yeah, they usually just kind of. Well, let's go out, play me something you might play for the dog tonight. Something for the dogs tonight? Yeah. All right, we'll go out with something. Uh, let me see. I'll play a song about a cat. <laughs> <laughs> shaking on a hot tin roof. <laughs> Good choice. Ryan, thank you so much. You've oh, just been terrific. Appreciate it. It's an honor, Dan. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.